first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. I mean, it was really a, a technological miracle that even made it possible for us to try this experiment of can we go a standard day with no moments of solitude? You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would be near impossible to avoid solitude on a regular basis through a typical day. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, my guest today is a returning guest, one of my favorite guests, Cal Newport, who is a computer scientist at Georgetown University, the author of a bunch of really fascinating books on technology and how to use it or not use it. You all have probably heard me talk about Deep Work, which is a book of his that has influenced me quite a bit. But he's got a new one uh, coming out called Digital Minimalism. And he defines digital minimalism as a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that support things you value. And then you happily miss out on everything else. We have a lot of conversations on the show about ways in which technology maybe is bad or is using us rather than us using it. And of course, we talk about some of that in, in this episode, too. But what's interesting to me about Newport's work is that he's actually coming up with a way to maybe reboot, a way to develop a different set of habits around technology and a different set of philosophies for when and how to use it. So this isn't just a conversation of complaining. This is a conversation with some very actionable ideas and some ideas you can put into play in your own life to, to see where you really stand with it. Um, and I think that, that, that reformatting our individual and social philosophies of technology is actually pretty important here. So I think this one is is very much worth it. We also have a pretty interesting discussion right at the top about solitude, which has left me with some ideas uh, I want to maybe explore more on the show in the future. So as you can email me, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Cal Newport. Cal Newport, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Ezra. Always a pleasure to talk with you. So I wanted to begin with solitude. You have a definition of it in the book that I like. Can you Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, the definition I use, I actually uh, borrowed from a book called Lead Yourself First, which has to do with uh, solitude in leadership. It's actually co-authored, of all people, by Raymond Kethledge, one of the, uh, the judges that was on the shortlist for uh, the Supreme Court last cycle around. So that's a little bit of interesting trivia. But it's this book on leadership. Um, and it had a definition of solitude uh, that really resonated with me, which is freedom from inputs from other minds. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because a lot of people think solitude in terms of uh, isolation. Am I far away from other people? Uh, am I far away from stimuli? 
it might up in a cabin in the woods. But the, the definition that I took from there is, no, no, it's about what is your mind processing? And so if you're uh, processing input from another mind, so looking at your phone, reading something, talking to someone, uh, sorry to say, listening to a podcast, uh, any of this means you're not in a you state You shut of... your mouth. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's a garbage book and a garbage idea. <laughs> Listen to the podcast. Um, so any, any circumstance in which you're processing inputs from other minds, you're not in solitude. And on the flip side, if you are alone with your thoughts, even if you're in a crowded coffee shop or on a subway car, uh, that could be a state of solitude. Um, and so my short summary of my argument on that is that solitude uh, is really, really important. And so I think the image a lot of people have of solitude, maybe even the image I have of solitude, is you imagine somebody in a cabin in the mountain somewhere reading a book. That doesn't qualify here. Yeah, ironically, uh, that's not solitude, whereas just sitting with nothing in your ears in the most crowded subway car would be. I was thinking about this after I read it, and I was realizing that I probably don't spend 10 minutes a day in solitude. Maybe I do because I meditate. So I guess during that period of time, I do. But with the exception of that, I don't think I spend 10 minutes a day in solitude, probably even cumulatively between the things I'm doing, between, you know, listening to to music and podcasts. I mean, I am constantly getting input from other minds. And I think a part of me thinks that's a good thing, right? To always be surfing an informational wave, to always be giving my my mind things to process, to always be grabbing more information out of the environment around me. Why Why do you think it isn't? Well, what you're underestimating is just how much raw cycles of solitude is required to actually do that processing. And so if you're only ever exposing yourself to interesting information, if you're only ever exposing yourself to the stimuli, but not taking the time to actually think about it, to process it, to look at it from different angles, to try to run it against other paradigms or structures you have in your current mental schema. If you don't do that work of just being alone with your own thoughts, you're probably extracting just a, a small fraction of the potential value. And it's also worth emphasizing how radical what you just said actually is. This is really, let's say, the last 10 years is probably the, the first time uh, in human history that it's even possible on a consistent basis to actually banish solitude essentially completely from the everyday experience. I mean, this required technological miracles. We had the That's cover... an amazing point, actually. It really is. I mean, uh, we had to cover the entire country with you know, high-speed, high-capacity wireless internet. We had to develop who knows how many different breakthroughs to get modern smartphones to work. I mean, it was really a, a technological miracle that even made it possible for us to try this experiment of can we go a standard day with no moments of solitude? You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would be near impossible to avoid solitude on a regular basis through a typical day. And this gets to something that in your other book, Deep Work, has influenced me a lot and, and that we've talked about before. But the way that our brain gets trained into and out of different kinds of expectations. And, and the reason I was thinking about this uh, definition you give of solitude and the degree to which I kind of hide from it is I recognize that when I sit without input, it now feels very strange. If I'm meditating, I mean, it, it's almost like exercising or something. It's, there's a, a push on that that I'm doing. But to just sit there and think, my mind at this point, like, like repulses from that, from that practice. And that training myself out of solitude and probably the tra- a lot of us training ourselves out of solitude, that feels like something worth uh, interrogating a little bit more. Like, what do you think is being lost individually or culturally by this, you know, as you say, only in the last decade destruction 
of, of bus altitude and possibly for a lot of us the capacity for it? Well, there's a couple issues. So one is the positive things that you miss. Uh, and then two is the negative things that you introduced that didn't ex- uh, exist before. So on the positive side, I mean, solitude, as I mentioned before, is this is when you, you process information and extract insight from it. Um, one of the big types of insights that people have traditionally pulled out of solitude is actually self-insight or self-reflection. And it, it's something I touch on in some more detail in the book. But if you really want to understand your life and what's going on in your life and, and try to integrate it into a, a story that makes sense and on which you can actually uh, make uh, actions and choose what to do. I mean, this requires lots of just self-reflection, uh, which requires lots of solitude. If you want to understand what you're about, set your principles, uh, structure your life around values, there's no way to the shortcut lots of just time alone with your thoughts thinking. Um, professionally, the issues you mentioned uh, play a big role. If you're not uh, comfortable thinking about things, you, again, are extracting only a small amount of the potential value that your brain uh, is capable of extracting. And then on the flip side, uh, there's some concerning evidence that uh, this experiment of not giving your brain the time just away from processing inputs from other minds, which is, by the way, a a sort of uh, exhausting process. Our our brain takes it seriously. It's sort of an all-hands-on-deck evolutionary directive. Oh, we have another mind that we're encountering. We have to simulate that other mind. We have to put it in a social context. It's a very draining thing. Um, We have some hints in, in, in the research literature that removing almost all solitude from your day might actually lead to negative effects in your brain. Um, I I point in particular to uh, the work on the youngest generation, Gen Z, which is the generation that is, I guess, the uh, most connected and least likely to participate in solitude of all of us. This is a generation that is constantly connected. And we see this really troubling rise in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders among this generation. Um, There's obviously a lot of factors at play there, but it seems like the demographers and psychologists are increasingly heading towards this consensus that smartphones uh, are playing a big role in it. And part of that is probably uh, the brain does not function properly when you don't actually give it down cycle time to just think or take things in or be by itself. So we talk about this in terms of big picture neurological development, but something you see in some of that Gen Z data and something that... I see in myself. And so I want to be careful because I'm only describing my own subjective experience of it, but but I suspect that it's shared by, by more people than me, is that when we say we teach the brain out of being able to bear boredom or bear solitude, it's a little bit unclear what is experientially happening there. But But I find for myself that what is experientially happening there is a kind of anxiety that when there's not enough going on, I feel like an almost like a, like a nervous itch that needs to be relieved. And the particular way in which a lot of these technologies seem to me to be training us, the way it's experienced is, is this constant like background hum of being nervous about, you know, did I get enough likes on that? Or is there something I need to worry about in my email? Or, oh yeah, I did have this task. I should go look on Amazon how much that thing is. That the the thing it seems to activate is is a kind of anxiety. I'm I'm curious if one if you feel that or or two if in your research on this stuff that that seems like it's a generalizable thing or or that's just my own idiosyncratic pathology. I think it's a reasonable conjecture uh, that is uh, could be generalized. I mean, this is why I think we we see in the in the demographic data this this big jump. Uh, in anxiety and anxiety-related disorders. I mean, I remember when this first came to my attention, I was actually, this was a few years ago, 
uh, talking to the head of mental health at a major university. Um, I was given a talk there. And, you know, something she mentioned to me is uh, there's been this big change. I mean, we used to get this uh, wide variety of different issues coming through our offices, the, the sort of normal cross-section of, of uh, mental health issues you might expect in a young population. There was uh, some eating disorders. There was some comp- uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. There was some really severe homesickness, et cetera. And she said it all switched recently. And almost everyone coming in is with an anxiety or anxiety-related disorder. And there's many, many more people coming in you know, to our office than ever before. And I said, well, what's causing this? And, and she didn't even take a beat. She said smartphones. <laughs> this is the first generation that's always connected. There's always things to look at. There's always things you could be missing out on. And then, then we get the data that comes out afterwards that the generation that's most connected has the highest anxiety. The, the jump in this is something that we've never seen before in an intergenerational gap. We don't usually see such big changes uh, between generations. And then we have more controlled study environments where they'll literally sit someone down uh, and they'll have their smartphone nearby but not in reach uh, and then they'll call it or otherwise have it buzz and uh, under the guise of doing some other type of experiment, they actually have physiological monitors on the subject and they can actually see the autonomic uh, nervous system react uh, with, with great anxiety, just thinking there's something going on there I should be doing or I'm missing. And so, I mean, I think your experience is very common. I think most of us have this background hum of anxiety that we just accept that, oh, I guess this is just modern life, and we don't realize the degree to which is probably arbitrary and constructed. But but this is something that I've begun to, I don't know if worry about is the right way to put it, but but think about more, which is, I don't think we have really a model of what are the emotions and drives that technology is taking advantage of to produce the behaviors that it produces. I think we've become more and more aware of the behaviors, right? We're distracted. We're constantly checking things. And to some degree, we've become more and more aware of the effects and maybe even negative effects on ourselves. But it does seem to me that the hooks are in things like anxiety, sociability, that it is, there are very powerful, you know, latent qualities in, in, in the human brain. And I don't think we have a lot of, good modeling or very good transparency on which ones are being tapped into and so which ones are being built and strengthened in us at at any given time. And this feels to me to be more of an issue around some of these devices and some of the sort of overall technological ecosystem we live in than we give it credit for. I feel like if some of these things came with a warning and said the way this is going to work is that we're going to intensify your constant feeling of anxiety in order and build that up and make that stronger in order to make you more always on for your work email and Slack and other things, you'd say, I don't want that at all. But when it just says, oh, we're going to make you more available to your work email, you think, oh, that sounds great. But there's this kind of mediating role of our emotions or or, or things that are in our psychological hardware that have to be activated for these things to work. And I don't feel like we have much of a discourse or dialogue around that. Well, we know more about it than we used to. Um, In part, we have, for example, researchers like uh, Adam Alter, who is drawing on his his background in psychology to better understand specifically the psychological hooks that technology is exploiting. And we also have whistleblowers like Tristan Harris, who has come out in the past couple of years, former Google employee, uh, who's starting to talk more publicly. These are the types of things that companies in Silicon Valley specifically do to heighten this sense of anxiety and compulsive behavior. And what we're learning from them is we're, we're getting insight into at least some of the psychological hooks that seem to be causing uh, this behavior. So actually, social media is probably uh, the right 
uh, experiment, the right case study, because this is a technology that was uh, unlike, let's say, email. This was a technology that was specifically altered uh, to try to heighten this sense of anxiety and compulsive use. So we can actually look at what they specifically did, what worked, to get a sense of what's going on more broadly in terms of our technological ecosystem. Uh, and a, a couple things you learn when you study the social media transformation from what it used to be, which was a relatively static medium uh, mediated through a web browser where maybe you updated your profile once or twice a week. If you checked your profile in the morning and checked your friend's profiles in the morning, there was no reason to check it again that day because probably nothing had changed. Uh, and somewhere around the time when, let's say, Facebook was making the shift to mobile uh, and their investors were getting itchy, right? We need, our, we need our 100x return. We need to go public. That means the revenue numbers need to go up. They really got serious about this attention engineering. And so as we know from the whistleblowers like Tristan Harris, uh, some of the things they did was, first of all, they added a lot more social approval indicators uh, into the experience. And so we're used to now this idea that you click like or that heart on Instagram, or you retweet something, or you, 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 you know, whatever, uh, tag someone's photo. Uh, but a lot of this was invented, and one of its primary uses is that it creates a much richer stream of potential social approval indicators coming at you as the consumer of social media. So now when you, you tap that app and you see some of these social approval indicators, 10 minutes later, there could be more, right? Uh, that was invented. That makes you tap that app all day long, whereas before, in the old browser-based system, there'd be no reason for you to type back in Facebook.com into your browser. Uh, and then, two, these social approval indicators are being delivered in an intermittent fashion. Sometimes when you click on it, you get these rewards. Sometimes you don't. And we've known since you know, the, the classic experiments with pigeons for these behavioral psychology experiments that something about intermittent reinforcement short-circuits our dopamine system and makes us do something well more than we should uh, or we think is healthy. I've been hearing increasing rumors that both Facebook and Instagram will actually artificially batch some of these social approval indicators like your likes to make sure that they're delivered in a more sort of haphazard, intermittent fashion. Um, and this is psychology 101. So intermittently reinforcement social approval indicators was engineered into these platforms. And the result is they became massively, massively profitable because it changed people's behavior from I sometimes go to this website into I can't stop checking this app and I'm not sure why. Yeah, you have this quote in the book from, I think it's from a Facebook engineer who says, it's hard to exaggerate how much the like button changed the psychology of Facebook use. I, I've been doing all this work for a book I'm writing about identity and psychology and you know how human beings relate to one another. And I'm very, very convinced that there's basically no stronger drive in the human being. I mean, when you get past food and water, then sociability. And that when you're playing with those, when you're playing with group identity and when you're playing with sociability, you're playing with some of the, the most primal and uncontrollable forces in our psyche. And that it's just much more powerful than we realize. And it's much more dangerous, actually, than we realize. You know, I, I feel a bit of myself. Um, I was thinking about this the other day when I was a blogger. I would write things all the time that people would argue with or they would attack or they would make fun of. And it never read as social rejection to me. Um, it always read as argument. Okay, that person disagrees with me. That's fine. And now, you know, I'll write something or I'll tweet something and people will attack it in these social networks, you know, or it'll get, you know, somebody will retweet a thing and it'll 2,000 things about how I'm an, you know, 2,000 likes on how I'm an idiot. And I feel it much more as social rejection. I feel it much more as like being bullied in elementary school. 
And something about that shift is very strange to me. It, it, it makes me much more cautious, um, for one thing. I, I dislike the feeling of it much more than I disliked the feeling of being argued with in the blogosphere. And just talking to other journalists, I, I hear it from them, too. Like, there's a level of anxiety about feedback in Twitter and other places that there never was when things were coming through letters or emails or other people writing, like, a counter column somewhere else. You'd be happy about people paying attention to your stuff and arguing with it elsewhere before. There, there's something about when this gets moved into a context where people are feeling social approval and rejection, where there's a lot of danger in it for folks. And I don't I don't think it's healthy for us. Um, and I also think it's like the, the way that context got constructed is subtle enough that I don't even think that most of us realize, certainly I didn't, when, when or how we passed from one thing that in its way was social because there were people involved to another thing which was about social dynamics uh, and how different that really was. Right. Well, I mean, I think we, we underappreciate how dangerous it was to have essentially uh, small groups of 20-somethings, you know, with hooded sweatshirts working in, you know, around ping pong tables and incubators thinking we can monkey with something as powerful as human sociality, which I agree with you is one of the strongest drives that we have as human beings. It's sort of massive amounts of our brain is dedicated to working on this and worrying about this, being concerned about this. Uh, we've built up social structures and social dynamics, you know, over decades and centuries to sort of be carefully compatible with this neural hardware. And then suddenly you get, you know, some kids out of Harvard or some such, they're like, oh, we can just redo this whole thing. Uh, there's a huge hubris in it, and it and it does cause it does cause a lot of problem. I mean, even the blogosphere. I'm a, I'm a huge blog supporter. You know, I'm a I'm a blog geek. I've been blogging for over a decade, and you know, I'm convinced part of the reason why that feels different um, is that in the blogosphere, where reputation is managed by the hyperlink, there is these uh, emergent decentralized trust hierarchies. Um, so over time, you would you would earn reputation. Uh, it allowed you to understand what the relative reputation was of other people uh, that you were talking with. And this was all very human and all very emergent. It had to do with who was linking to who and over time how those dynamics changed. And as a result, you, you understood you had a more complex social dynamic in which to interact with people. Um, so, you know, if someone uh, who was well established in the blogosphere wrote a counter column, you felt like, well, this is a sort of professional respect and I professionally respect this person. Um, if someone who was low on this emergent decentralized trust hierarchy was, you know, saying something kind of stupid or trolling you, it was in a context of like, yeah, but that's not a, that's not a comment I have to take as seriously um, because this is not someone who's sort of in this decentralized form moved up to a, to a level of reputation where I should think about it. And that was really mimicking what happens in sort of in-person or classical social structures. And it worked pretty well. Um, social media homogenized all of that. It said, no, everyone is essentially the same. Everyone has an account. Um, we, we're, we will, there aren't these sort of implicit link-based uh, hierarchies where people sort of earn intellectual credibility over time. So everyone's sort of the same. And we'll have these algorithms that kind of just feed to you what you should be looking at and, and maybe trying to manipulate your emotions to some degree. And I think that was a really uh, significant and dangerous shift in the way that we were socializing in a technological space. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, 
a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Okay, so I have a lot of conversations on this podcast about how social media and the kind of current digital ecosystem is bad. But but you're different. You have an actual recipe for making things, at least on the individual level, a little bit better. So let's start here. Tell me about the road to digital minimalism. Where did the term come from? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, Are you a minimalist? Do you think of yourself as a, as a minimalist, putting digitalism aside? Um, not in all aspects of my life. I think minimalism is a concept that you know goes back to antiquity. And it comes up again and again and is applied in uh, context after context and is often quite successful. So I think it's one of these ideas that's just in the the operating system of our human culture that uh, you can look at it historically. It shows up again and again and again in all these different contexts. Even in our modern context, there's many places it applies, right? I mean, if you apply uh, minimalism to your work, you have uh, Greg McEwen's essentialism, right? Um, if you apply it to your finances, you have the financial independence movement. Um, there's this, this whole culture of online minimalists, like my friends, the minimalists themselves, Ryan Nicodemus and uh, uh, Joshua Fields Milburn, who apply a lot of these ideas of minimalism to stuff in your house, right? So these ideas come up all the time. I'm definitely a digital minimalist. Uh, I try to be a work minimalist. Um, and so... It's like a, a general tool that can be applied to a lot of places to various degrees. All right. So what is digital minimalism? So digital minimalism is a, a philosophy of technology use. So instead of just a collection of tips or good intentions, it's an actual uh, philosophy of technology use that you base in your values, something that you can believe in and gives you a consistent way to approach the question of what text should I be using and what text should I not so it gets rid of the sort of ad hoc nature of most people's relationships with technology. Um, and it's talking about technology primarily in your personal life. And the basic idea is, in a classic minimalist fashion, uh, you wipe the slate clean of all of the clutter that's just built up haphazardly in your digital life. You wipe the slate clean, and then you only add back things in that you believe are going to significantly support something that you really value. And then, and this is a key part, you're just happy ignoring the rest. Even if some of the stuff you're ignoring might have some minor value or inconvenience, you only bring back into your personal technological life uh, tools, apps, or services that give you big wins on things that you really care about. And how, let me ask the question this way. I think to a lot of people, it feels like that's impossible. Their friends are on Facebook, you know, on Twitter, that that's where the news is. People are inviting each other to things. Baby pictures are on there that even if you don't like it anymore, even if you don't like a lot of this stuff, you can't get away from it. Um, it's essential in some fundamental way. How do you get over that feeling? And are there people from that feeling is true? Well, I think one of the key things about minimalism is that it doesn't predetermine this is what's good and this is what's bad. The thing that it predetermines is that what's important are your deepest values, the thing that matters most. And the core mathematics behind minimalism is that if you put most of your energy into the small number of things that matter most, you will end up better off than if you take that same energy and try to dissipate some of it among lower value alternatives. Um, so the way I usually recommend that people enter minimalism is sort of a rip the band-aid type approach. And basically I have this 
process called the digital declutter, which is you, you take 30 days, you leave everything, you get back in touch through self-reflection with what matters, and then at the end, you very carefully add things back. Um, so last January, I invited some of my readers, let's go through and do this declutter together because I want to learn about it as part of the research for my book. And because this is a big ask, leave everything for 30 days and then be very selective about what comes back, I thought that maybe 50 or 60 people would sort of bravely agree to do this. And in the end, over 1,600 people signed up and did it. Um, and I got reports back from hundreds of them. And the changes that they made were really drastic. And the benefits they reported were really big. And so I, I think we're at a time now, which is different than even, say, two years ago, where people are ready to consider much more drastic overhauls of what exactly their digital life looks like and what exactly they're trying to do in it. I like the idea that this is a philosophy. And you, you write in the book that you compare it with what you call the philosophy of digital maximalism, which is a mindset in which any potential for benefit from a technology is enough to start using that technology. Can you talk a little bit more about that and talk a little bit more about what you think the philosophy under which we adopt technology is now? Yeah, maximalism is the sort of classic foil uh, to minimalism. And it's an idea, especially now, especially in Western culture, uh, that's quite dominant. And it's this notion that you focus almost exclusively on the potential value that you can get out of something. So from this mindset, when you think about Facebook or something, you just think about what are the potential values I could get out of it. Uh, the issue with maximalism is that you then think about not using something in terms of lost value. So uh, you, you think about all these things I'm not using. That's all value I could have. It's money left on the table, uh, and I'm walking away from it. So you, you think almost like this value is being taken uh, out of my life, where minimalism flips that and says, well, figure out the most important things and put all of your energy into that and don't worry so much about the small value you're leaving behind that you'll end up better off. Now, there's some pretty simple mathematics behind it. I mean, essentially, in almost uh, any endeavor, and certainly in your digital life, the, the distribution of return you get from various activities is, is not linear. It's actually usually pretty nonlinear. So the things that are most valuable give you significantly more value uh, than things that are less valuable in your hierarchy. And once you have a distribution like that, um, if you want to maximize your value, it's almost always the right thing to do to put as much uh, energy as possible into these things to give you the really big returns because you know every, let's say, hour you take – away from one of these high return activities uh, to spread among lower return activities, yeah, you get a little bit of value from those, but you're missing this huge amount of value that you could have gotten. Um, so when I was researching the book, I actually, I went back and reread Walden, which is sort of uh, one of my favorite books in minimalism. Uh, people often wrongly think about this as a book about nature, but it, it's actually a, a profound economic argument uh, in favor of sort of a minimalist approach to your, into your work and life. And so, you know, very interesting argument. Um, but Thoreau has this great example, uh, because when he's talking about the mass of men who leave lives of quiet desperation, he was mainly talking about the heavily mortgaged farmers near him in Concord, Massachusetts at the time. Uh, and he was really worried about uh, how much of their lifetime, their life force, and their labor they were, they were giving up in order to get these sort of small benefits like Venetian blinds and better pots. And he had this great example of, you know, think about the farmer uh, who purchases a, a carriage to get to town. And the farmer is happy because on the carriage, it only takes 20 minutes to get to town. And when he has to walk, it takes him an hour. 
But Thoreau says if you go and do the math, you know, it turns out that he's having to work uh, an extra two hours per week to afford the carriage. So he's actually worse off. He actually has much less time than if he just didn't work two extra hours and then took, you know, 40 more minutes to walk into town. And that was Thoreau's way of getting at this sort of problem with maximalism is that uh, there's a cost associated with what you spend your time on. And this cost is not just what directly you get from that activity, but what you could have been investing that time in instead. Uh, and that's really the foundation for minimalism in general and definitely for digital minimalism. I, I mean, the concept that seems to be circling around is this idea of crowd out, that we're very good when adopting something or looking at something at understanding the benefits of what it could bring to us. But the problem is, what is it crowding out? And it seems to me that often you have something like Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be. I mean, in a previous uh, era, it was television. I've been reading a lot of Neil Postman lately, and he's writing these what turn out to be extremely prescient uh, criticisms of, of these new technologies, but it's all about television. And it seems to me that the thing that keeps happening is that we crowd out things that are like solitude or like open space on a on a day planner, where a lot is coming out of it potentially, but those benefits are not exactly calculable. And then slowly, like what you, you begin to crowd out things that are just slower, right? I mean, Twitter is going by and it's disappearing, whereas like the New Yorker on your nightstand, it's going to be there. But in the end, you don't end up reading the New Yorker because you keep flicking through Twitter and you end up like continuously crowding out things that are urgent or feel a sense of scarcity or designed with a sense of scarcity. And um, you crowd out all these things that aren't, but the things that aren't had a kind of value to them that is simply not being shouted quite as loudly. I mean, I think this is exactly the problem uh, that has been thwarting a lot of positive action on these sort of uh, ambiguous unease that people are, are increasingly having with their digital lives. And, I, you know, I say this right in the, the first chapter of the book is that the issue we're having is not about usefulness. It's about autonomy. It's not about is this thing I'm doing right now bad for me or worthless. It's am I spending so much time doing these things that I'm missing out on things I think is more important? Am I losing my ability to actually uh, shape a meaningful life? And you know, a funny example that, that sort of made this really clear to me was you know back in 2016 when this is really when I first started noticing that people were were, were starting to shift from you know, self-deprecating jokes about their phones to really getting concerned. So this was right before the shift started to happen. Um, I wrote this op-ed for the New York Times in which you know, I was just being provocative and saying bad things about social media. Um, and so as normally happens after you write something like that for the Times, you do some, some ancillary media. So I, I did an interview on a, a national radio show in Canada. And so they had me on, they're asking me some questions, and then they, they sprung this ambush. They said, aha, but now joining us on the line is this artist um, who uses social media you know, to find his audience and to, and to sell his artwork. And the, the implication from the host and, and the social media expert they also brought on as part of the ambush is like, aha, we've caught you. Um, here's something. Yeah, do you want this guy to starve? Yeah, this is something that's useful that you can do with social media. So you really need to stop criticizing it. Um, but as the conversation went on, at one point, the artist admitted, you know, I found myself having to take long breaks from social media so I could actually get my art done in the first place. And it was sort of like encapsulated in this one interview was all of the problems we have in actually trying to face these issues is that too, too often we're like the host of this program. 
and we're focused on uh, usefulness. Is there any use to these tools? If there are, will you please stop criticizing them? Um, and we don't enough think about autonomy, that, yeah, maybe this makes it easier for me to sell my art, but if it's preventing me from doing art in the first place, am I really winning in this exchange? And so I've definitely been trying to push that message, and that's why minimalism starts with values and works backwards. Uh, as opposed to trying to eliminate. Because as soon as you start saying, let's try to eliminate from your lives you know, technology that is not so good, you just put someone in this, this sort of utilitarian calculus of, well, how much is six baby pictures worth you know, in exchange for you know, 20 minutes less time spending on this? And it's almost an impossible calculus. So when you go additive, okay, here's what I really value. Let me see if I can really pump those things up and not be too concerned about everything else. That seems to work better. I think that there are a lot of people who will hear this. And what they'll be reminded of, which you hear about people doing all the time right now, is a digital detox. And you're critical in the book of the idea of a digital detox. Do you want to talk a little bit about what is the difference between the digital minimalism, digital decluttering that you're talking about, and the digital detoxes where people take a week or a month off of a couple of technologies? Yeah, if you think about uh, the context in which we appropriate the term detox, it usually comes out of the uh, substance abuse community. Where the idea is if you have a, a substance addiction, you need to um, first sort of remove the, the grip it has on your mind before you can go forward and, and be successful in rebuilding a life without it. But you would never hear someone say, you know, you know Ezra, I think you have a, you know, a real problem with this drug, but don't worry. I have a great plan. We're going we're gonna to take a week and you're not going to take that drug at all for a week. And then afterwards, of course, you'll go back to using it like you did before. Uh, what problem have you solved? You know, maybe you got a little bit of relief, but, but the bigger question is, what was the issue that made me feel like I had to take a break in the first place? That's what we need to solve. And so I'm not a big fan of this idea that just stepping away temporarily from your digital life is, is all you need to get around some of the issues that people are feeling. I think we have to confront the underlying problem. And so that's why I shifted the terminology from detox to declutter. Uh, I'm not just trying to give you a break from technologies. I think you actually have to step back, look at your overcrowded house, get all that stuff out of there, and then just bring back in the things that you really need. I mean, we're used to this, of course, in the context of physical clutter. Um, and so it's moving that exact same analogy to your digital life. Now, if you do this to clutter, there is a detox effect as part of it. But like a good detox in the sort of substance abuse community, it's followed by a transformation of your life going forward. And a point you make in this is that if you're taking things away, you have to put things in intentionally. Can you talk about that? Because that struck me as pretty profound. Yeah. And the key part of this type of minimalism transition process is that uh, the rule I have is that you essentially work backwards um, from the things you value most. You, you identify these clearly. This is self-reflection. And then for each, you ask, what is the best way to use technology to support this value? Uh, there might be lots of different things that might offer some benefits to, let's say, your desire to be social or connected to your community or, or to your family or whatever, right? There might be lots of different things that have some, uh, some benefit they offer, but you say, what's the best way? What's the thing I can do that's going to give the best ROI? And then you allow your answer to those questions to basically stand as defining your personal digital life. Um, so it's about these are things I intentionally chose because they give me huge returns on things I care about, and I'm just happy with that. I don't care about the other things I'm missing out on. I'm much more interested in uh, spending time on the things I already know for sure really matter. And I know what I'm doing here is giving me a huge boost on those. And I'll give an example of, of something that I've been trying to do on this, which is 
I've been trying to set as a rule that I have to spend more time reading books each day than reading social media. Because what I found was that if I just tried to do less social media, I, it didn't really end up working. Like, to go back to crowd out, um, if there's nothing there, then there was just like the space for the thing to come back in. That I actually had to crowd it out with other things where I could then feel the benefits of those other things accruing. And over time, that really worked um, for me. It really, really helped. Uh, but but there needed to be an alternative. There needed to be something new new to jump to. I'm, I'm curious, given that you did this with 1,600 people, what are some of the examples you saw that really seemed to work? Well, this was actually one of the big surprises I got out of that uh, experiment was the degree to which people had eliminated these type of, we can call it high-quality analog leisure activities from their lives, the things that people uh, always used to dedicate a good portion of their leisure time to, um, the degree to which people had allowed the digital to push it out, and the degree to which people were very uncomfortable uh, when they suddenly had to face life away from the digital distraction without having yet replaced this time with high-quality analog leisure. And so this sent me down this rabbit hole to really understand, well, why is this so important? And and I followed this trail all the way back to Aristotle writing the Nicomachean Ethics, this idea that actually human beings need to flourish activities that they do just for the sake of that activity. That this is sort of uh, the recipe for being able to find some sort of uh, joy or beauty or meaning in a life that's otherwise going to have a lot of sort of hardship and things that you can't control. It's this sort of fundamental human need. Um, Any time throughout the history of human civilizations that people have been lucky enough to have some leisure time, they almost immediately uh, fill it with some sort of structured, high-quality analog leisure. Um, And so what's happening now in the last 10 or 15 years is actually, again, uh, just like the lack of solitude, is remarkably rare in our human history, which is that we have, especially young people, um, don't have any of these high-quality activities that you do just for the sake of the quality. Um, And so this is a big issue. That when people remove distraction from their life, it can be incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, Essentially, we've been papering over the void in our life that's been created by not having these sort of Aristotelian high-quality activities. We've been papering it over with constant distraction that kind of keeps our eyes just slightly averted from the existential void, right? Um, And so then you can't help but turn and face it once you get rid of all those distractions. Uh, It's sort of like Nietzsche with Facebook or something. Um, So it's it's, it's quite scary. And I was surprised to the degree to which that was important to the point now where I actually advise people, um, if you want to do something like a declutter, you might want to take a few months first and actually just work on the analog side of your leisure time uh, because it's going to make it much easier to tolerate when you actually do this rip the Band-Aid off uh, type action of, of stepping away from all of your digital distraction. And we're talking here about leisure activities and hobbies, but I actually think socializing is in some ways the, the, the biggest piece of this, that probably a lot of your social connections have moved to your texting people and your emailing people. And that seems particularly true among young people now. I mean, there's a huge amount of evidence that a tremendous amount of like teenage socializing has moved from in-person or even on the telephone to, to online and over text. And there's actually been a fall in a lot of in-person socializing that it becomes much harder, right? If you, if you're, if you pull back from these things and the alternative is loneliness, the alternative is that you feel left out. I mean, that's not going to work at all. Right. But we, we, we find there's been in uh, recent years, these, these really high quality um, sort of epidemiological studies that are finding this sort of puzzling connection that increased social media use is creating increased loneliness, 
which seems to be the opposite effect that, that you would expect. And, and one of the, the big hypotheses for why this is true um, is that digital interaction, so interaction that does not have an analog component like listening to someone's voice and the nuances of it or looking at someone's body language or actually making some sort of um, sacrifice, like I actually had to travel to come see you, that digital interaction... Thank you. Not... I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I flew overnight to sit down next to you for this interview. Um, that this sort of digital interaction actually doesn't come close to giving the same rewards as uh, like what Sherry Turkill would call sort of real-world conversation. Um, and so this is why you can actually get more lonely as you spend more time doing digital interaction. It's not because the digital interaction itself is causing this negative effect. It's because it's crowding out the real world conversation, which is what our brain has evolved to actually crave. And our, our brain doesn't understand that that number, you know, or a little comment under a picture on the small glowing rectangle in your hand is another human being um, who, who's interacting with you and fulfilling your need for sociality. It doesn't understand that. Now, there's some part of your frontal cortex that thinks that counts. And so you do more and more of that and you do less and less of the real world and it leaves you worse off. And so um, that's why it is scary, of course, to step away from that digital interaction. But we need to do that anyways because it's not working. It, it's not a substitute. It's, it's a sort of arbitrary activity that, again, was cooked up by 20-somethings in some you know, incubator rec room over in Northern California. It, it's, you can't take uh, millions of years of evolution and replace it with this new novel activity and expect it's going to work. And so not, not to go on a bit of a a tangent. Um, but I think that's, that scariness is good um, because then once you've removed this and you're scared and I'm not interacting, maybe that's going to force you to say, well, let me try to reestablish in its wake a sort of more old-fashioned real-world conversation-based sociality that will actually give me the nutrients that I need for human flourishing. But if that's true, if we crave actual real-world conversation, then, then how come so many of us, including me actually, have the experience of you're sitting in a conversation talking to people and it gets tiring and you begin to crave looking at your phone. You're sitting there with, you know, your partner and friends, or you're there with family and you find yourself like going to the bathroom to look at your phone. It always feels to me like there's something tiring about actual real world socializing and the phone can be this sort of escape. It's like a, it's like a mental break in a way. But then you find yourself taking more and more of them and soon enough the whole quality of the conversation degrades. I mean, there, there's something weird in that where... If the if the internal signals were all as clear as we sometimes make them out to be in these conversations, we wouldn't have the problem in the first place. Right. But I think the signals are being short-circuited. I mean, that's the problem. These, these signaling, uh, signaling mechanisms evolved in an environment where we, we didn't have these uh, you know, wirelessly connected glowing LED blocks. Um, we're not ready for that. Our brain doesn't understand it. So the signals are all getting crossed. I mean, and so this is why, you know, one part of your brain, if you're a 19-year-old and you essentially never leave your room, thinks that you're very, very social. And you, you think that you're satisfying sort of uh, logically, you think I'm satisfying my need to be social. I've been talking to people all day. But then these other deeper parts of your brain are making you feel anxious and lonely because they say, hey, we haven't been turned on recently to, to you know, analyze body language or to, to try to process nuance in, um, in, in, in voice and the sort of the mirror neurons. Where's the person in front of us, right? Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving sort of um, non-scientifically accurate examples there, but you, you, you get the general point. And so all these signals get crossed. And then the same thing, the way that our dopamine system has been short-circuited by all of this intermittent reinforcement on the phone, we suddenly find ourselves like the old lady at the slot machine handle 
having to sneak out to the bathroom to look at these things, again, that's a short-circuited signal, right? Uh, that's one part of our brain that thinks we have to go pull this lever again, where another part of your brain says, well, this is crazy. I need to still sit here with my mom. This is more important. Um, so I, I, I think we our signals are important, but we can't trust them as much. They're getting short-circuited. And that's part of the issue going on here is that these technologies are messing with our brains in ways that we don't completely understand, which is why we're seeing such profound impacts that confuse us so much. So I want to go back to some of the underlying philosophy of how we approach technology now. Something I've been thinking a lot about is like the, I don't want to call it the myth of the Luddites, but the power of anti-Ludditism. There's this idea that at every point when a technology is introduced, you have people who stand in its way. And those people are always wrong because, look, technology has kept going forward and here we are. So, of course, they were wrong. And I've been going back and reading some of the critics of previous rounds of technology. I mentioned Neil Postman a couple minutes ago um, and realizing that a lot of what they said was right. I mean, yes, technology kept moving on. Yes, society kept moving on. But they were also correct. And it seems to me that as a lot of dominant ideologies do, our ideology towards technology has developed these like very powerful defense mechanisms. And one defense mechanism it has is that if you think a technology might be bad, you're a Luddite. And anybody who's against the introduction of a technology is always wrong. And it, it seems to me that aside from just being intentional about how we use technology, that we maybe need a different or more rigorous way of thinking about how to introduce technologies. Um, obviously, I don't mean that in a regulatory sense, or at least not for most technologies. Um, but I, I do mean it in a, in a kind of philosophical, cultural sense. There's very little room, it seems to me, to actually be against new things right now. But the, the complete uncritical adoption of everything from like jewel vaping um, technology to Facebook, it seems like we should have some kind of bigger rethink that isn't just about those products, but about the culture that just allowed those products to spread like wildfire without thinking twice about it. I'm a huge believer in this idea. I mean, I, I, I read quite uh, widely in the sort of philosophy of technology, and, and a lot of interesting people have thought about this. And I think there's a couple uh, relevant points here. Um, first of all, I don't think the actual Luddites uh, are a bad example. I mean, if you go back and look at what happened in the original Luddite revolution, it was actually uh, an economic philosophy that was actually quite plausible at the time, right? I mean, you, you go to this particular uh, area in, uh, in the UK and there was the advent of steam looms were coming. Um, this was before we had a lot of rigorous sort of economic theory in the way we think about it today. And the workers in this town said, wait a second, we're thinking about this. Uh, if we bring in these steam looms, uh, almost everyone's going to lose their job. But a very small number of people who run these mills are, are going to actually uh, keep a lot more of this money. Um, and they're like, well, is this really what we want to do, right? I mean, maybe the utilitarian argument should be that we should be trying to actually maximize the average utility of the town. This, maybe this is a bad move. Now, to a modern sort of classically trained economist, they say, no, you have to do this creative destruction. You know, you have Hayek and all these very complicated uh, theories about, you know, free markets and stuff. So now we look at that argument as naive. But in the context, it was actually a relatively uh, philosophically profound and plausible argument they were putting forward. It's like this is actually a, a good time to step back and say, what is our goal with economic development? Um, and so there's actually something really human to what was happening with the original uh, Luddite revolution. And that's actually, uh, I think, a lesson we should take away, which is to encounter new technologies through this human perspective, uh, which we often don't do. So there used to be these really big thinkers, like these big think thinkers in the uh, 20th century, especially the first half of the 20th century. 
that were tackling these issues and had these huge theories that though they were academic, they read like idea books. Like um, I was recently reading uh, Jacques Ellul's 1967 book, The Technological Society, which it's it's French, but there's a really good translation uh, available uh, through Berkeley Press. And he's basically making exactly the argument you're talking about. He talks about the self-perpetuating nature of what he calls the technique and how it has this almost autonomous drive that if it's possible to advance to this next step, you have to do it. Um, and it basically co-ops, it talks about how it co-ops the whole culture so that culturally you think this is inevitable, this is what we have to do, this is the right way forward. And so we had these big thinkers. Um, and from what I can understand talking to some some people in this field is that we lost a lot of the vigor in sort of the field of the philosophy of technology, that, that the field went into sort of a more internally focused, scholastic type direction. Uh, social determinism is sort of the dominant theory now, which is this sort of really complicated, narrow focused looks at the very specific ways in which, you know, various groups interact with emerging technologies to serve their needs. It's sort of this sort of very complex, whatever kind of academic type theory heavy approach. And we've lost these big thinkers like Alol or like Lynn White Jr. or like Mumford, who are really grappling with this. So I think you're actually on to something that this is something we need to return to is thinking big thoughts about what is the role of technology in sort of a thriving human society? What's the, philosophically speaking, what's the right way to tackle them? Um, you know, I'm working on this uh, book now about email. And like one of the big ideas in this book about email is that you know, it was invented and they said, let's just use it. And it ended up having these profound impacts on what it even meant to work in the knowledge age that was completely emergent and no one decided. And, and as we've talked about before, had a lot of negative consequences. Um, and you see this especially with, with personal digital technology. So this is all sort of a, a long rant because it's something I care a lot about, which is um, we need more Postmans and I think we need more Alols and Mumfords and Lynn White Juniors and all these people who used to think big thoughts about how we should approach technology. We need basically to be like the original Luddites again, not the, not the cultural bastardization of this term, which is this sort of neo-Luddite straw man that you're just someone that for some reason hates technology. I mean, I think the Unabomber is the last person I've met that actually agrees with that. But this more human idea of, all right, I'm glad we have inventions and that capability, but what do we want to use them for and why? But okay, so there, there's something here that I think is interesting, which is that my read of this is that we don't have a theory of technology. It's not even digital maximalism. What we have is neoliberalism. And the the underlying idea that basically greets everything, unless it's one of a small group of things that falls into either a protected or a state category, right? So like basically drugs or laws, um, is it if something is winning in the market, then consumers are choosing it. And if consumers are choosing it, then it is good. Right. Consumers are revealing a preference. And who are you to, to, to question that preference? Um, now, we don't feel that way if it's, say, cocaine. Um, then we're going to question the preference. Uh, but pretty much everything else, you know, with the exception of some things for children where, you know, we won't let, I don't know, 10 year olds watch scary movies or something. Um, we, we, we feel this way about. And what is going on here is not it's not really about technology. We don't care if it's new technology or not. What we care about is not interrupting the workings of the market. And you can have all the technological philosophy you want, but unless you have some kind of counter to that, it's why I think the, the example of the Luddites is actually interesting, because even in that, what you were saying was that they had a, an economically naive um, way of thinking about it. And I think that a lot of good arguments here would be knocked down by people saying they're economically naive when really what they are is saying that there is some value I want to place over economic 
choice here. There's some value that I think is more important than maximizing growth. Uh, but I would see it a little bit differently. Um, so I, I, I think the shortcoming in the classical market view is that it, it thinks about uh, the consumer is being sort of purely rational in some sort of quantitative sense. And, and of course, behavioral economics has, has broken that model and we know that there's these sort of systematic biases and, and we've all read you know, Danny Kahneman's book. Um, but, but the other aspect I don't think we talk about as much is that when it comes to choice, especially consumer choice, um, it's not just a quantitative rational decision, you know, what's the value to this for me in dollars. Um, these decisions are also mediated by the cultural firmament in which we're surrounded. And so what I'm arguing for is not that we need to uh, come in and disrupt this marketplace, let's say, in a regulatory fashion. What I'm arguing for is that us as a culture needs to actually care more about this cultural firmament. We actually need to think, uh, what is this? How do we as a culture like to think about and value technologies? Is this right? Do we want to change this? This, this firmament on which we base a lot of our uh, decisions as consumers is something that itself we need to analyze. Because I think what has happened is you know, starting around the 90s, um, we just decided that our, our cultural take on new techs was uh, basically Silicon Valley was like uh, the, the quote Bill Maher. It's basically nerd gods handing down gifts. And it's great. It's innovation. It's fun. Um, it's something to do. Uh, it replaces you know, a lot of things that we've lost. And so that we're just not going to think about it that much. So a lot of what I argue for is that we should have a more sophisticated cultural understanding of tools and how they fit in a life well lived. And I think that's actually just a well-functioning uh, market, right? That's working within the confines of a well-functioning market, not actually trying to sort of disrupt uh, the classical structure. I mean, we do have in place a, a culture about how we think about technology that plays a big role in why we use or don't use these things. And I think modifying that culture through cultural self-reflection is actually a very uh, sort of healthy operation that, that works within the context of the way that these markets operate. It's not an external intervention. But g give me an example of a market where you think that works pretty well, because I look at the markets we actually have, and what I see is there is a certain amount of cultural mediation across them, for sure. But for the most part, the incentives to get the thing that is cheap and easy now tends to win out. I mean, we burn huge amounts of fossil fuels despite knowing that we shouldn't. We pack foods with refined sugars despite knowing it's bad for us. Um, sort of market after market after market, you know, I can see places where the culture is offering a message like, hey, maybe that's not such a great idea. But overwhelmingly, the not such a great idea works out if it's more addictive and it's more convenient than the other ideas. And certainly what we're talking about in the cultures that you're concerned about are, uh, I'm sorry, the technologies you're concerned about are things that are addictive and convenient and sort of emotionally sugary. And it does not seem to me that we have, that, that cultural messaging is very effective against that in, in very many places. Um, are, are there are there spots you look at uh, a, a, as a bright side? Because I take your point. This isn't what economics says. I'm not I'm not putting this on the economics profession. I, I think this is how markets work in practice, and we are very we are very loath to question the choices actual consumers make, even if those choices are being shaped and influenced by you know advertisers and um, you know people spending a lot of money to, to push those incentives around them. Well, I think a good example is probably food and health. I mean, I think right now we're, we're in the, the middle of a transformation, the way that our culture thinks about things. I, I think 30 years ago to think that the organic sector 
uh, food production would be so large would be crazy, right? I mean, that, uh, to not use pesticides like, on our food, like this, this, this doesn't make sense, but that, that's grown really huge. We see, uh, you know, fast food is having trouble and is having to adapt. And, and to me, that's an example of what's actually subtly changing is the culture. Now, I agree that when, you know, messages come down from above, so if it's sort of being delivered by a sort of technocratic elite that says, okay, listen up, people, we've been studying this, um, and, and this is what you should be doing, that doesn't tend to work so well. And, and this is why, for example, probably like Michael Pollan has a much greater impact on our nation's health than uh, the, the Department of Agriculture ever had in terms of their food pyramids and their official guidelines about what we should and shouldn't do. And so, so these changes are a little bit more um, emergent. I think, for example, you know, a hypothesis I have is that about five years from now, uh, the way that we conceive of smartphone use among young people is going to be very different as a culture. Not that there's going to be a law passed. I just think we're going to have this idea that you would ever give a 13-year-old a smartphone with social media. We're just going to think that's crazy, right? I mean, that's a cultural shift I'm starting to see um, as, as people are firsthand witnessing the impact and, and the data starting to become clear. Um, so I do think it's possible. I think I think we we do see these shifts. We've seen it in parenting. That's another area. Uh, the the fall of corporal punishment. I mean, that was largely a, a, a emergent change in the sort of cultural ferment and that, that dictated how people think about parenting. In fact, the way our generation parents is very different than the way the last generation parents, which is very different than which the generation before them parented. Um, so these are you know th- these are some examples where we see these changes. Uh, where, where people can really strongly change how they behave once our sort of cultural understanding shifts. Now, I don't know exactly how to uh, spark those shifts. I mean, I think this is why, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point was so popular uh, when it came out is that it seemed to offer some insight into how you might be able to manufacture these type of wide-scale wide sort of, you know, shifts in behaviors or thoughts. And no one really knows exactly how it works. Um, but it sounds like I'm probably more optimistic than you are. Uh, and maybe it's because I'm out there and and I'm and maybe I have a biased sample I hear from the people who want to change. But but I really have sensed a shift starting to happen, starting about two years ago, in terms of how people are beginning to sort of place digital tools in their personal life, how they're the, the, the mental structures in which they're trying to place it, in which they're trying to understand it. Something I really do think is shifting. Oh, I, I actually agree it's shifting. I just I think that a lot of these shifts end up operating on the margins as opposed to as opposed to in the center of it. But to try to be more optimistic for a minute, something you write about towards the end of the book was interesting to me. The the idea of almost handicapping devices so they become more single use. So you have, say, a laptop that's really just a word processor. You don't allow it to connect to the internet or, or other things. There's a product that came out recently. It's um, it, They actually took the name of Palm, like the, the old Palm Pilots, but, but it's not one. But it's like this little phone from Verizon. And it's basically just a small add-on phone where the idea is you just don't put as much stuff on it. So, you know, it's a phone that maybe you do messaging on and you have calls on, but you don't have social media on. And I've been thinking about the ways in which uh, bundling can actually be bad for us. I mean, you track in the book a bit how the iPhone was initially meant to be an iPod plus a phone, right? You were supposed to have music and phone. We didn't expect it to have all these other things. And you talk about how there are these studies in Facebook where if you use it for very specific purposes, it can make you happier. But the way it gets used in aggregate, the way people experience it overall makes them less happy. And I've wondered a lot whether or not we need to move towards a trend of debundling a lot of these things. I mean, it seemed like it's, oh, it's so great and so useful to have everything on one device. 
But actually, maybe it's too much. And I often find myself wanting, not wanting to bring a phone out because I don't want the distraction, but I need to be able to um, get a rideshare home at the end of the night. And so, you know, whether or not there's going to be a move towards giving people devices that uh, are able to accomplish certain specific tasks so that we're not always confronted with everything all at once um, and just the, the risks of temptation are lower. Yeah, you know, I, I track this story in the book and I, I go back to looking at personal computers and, and even the very early ads for the original Apple One and the original Apple Two. And of course, one of the big benefits of the personal computer is that it could do different things. And so the very first ad talked about like, look, this guy is using the computer uh, at his work and then he brings it home and does his home finances on it. So look, you can do multiple things with this computer. And that, that was a, a big element of productivity. Um, at some point around the time that we, we switched over to a sort of more Unix-style uh, operating systems, like with the Windows operating systems, um, that introduced this idea that you could have multiple things going on at the same time. And it's here where I think we actually were led astray. So you know, this was motivated by um, these large timeshare mainframes, where the reason why you needed a computer to be able to do multiple things at the same time is you had many different users log into the same computer. So it, it had to service multiple different users who were each doing one thing. Well, the computer scientists who were sort of thinking about personal operating systems, they, this was elegant, they brought it over. And so then the personal computer uh, experience shifted to one in which you could have multiple windows open. And it's here where we start to have a mismatch between the technology and how the human brain functions because the human brain uh, is really not good at context shifting. I mean, this is, this is something we have a lot of psychological research for, that when you shift from this to this, there's a real cost for it. There's a real cost to the attention shift. So we ironically can find ourselves being less productive um, by being able to have more things active at the same time. But that got us used to this notion that sort of, you know, having more things that, that we can get back and forth between as quickly as possible uh, is what it meant to be productive. And so then that carried over into uh, the way we thought about smartphones. Um, and so now we are where we are today, where we, we have everything you can imagine on a phone. We make it as easy as possible to, to switch switch between them. Um, and yeah, it's causing these sort of unintentional harms because uh, there's a difference between having a device that can maybe have various things it can do, but this notion that you need to, to be jumping between lots of different things all on the same advice, device, that's not necessarily what's going to be best for us in a lot of contexts. So um, I do think there's something there. You know, I just wrote this blog post recently where I talked about a lot of the original motivations for the smartphone, which was you can do business functions away from your office, uh, those have really disappeared because you can have a tablet or laptops are really small now. I mean, there, there's technologies that are much better for, for doing office work that you can bring with you. And so we've lost a lot of that original motivation that we need lots of things on a smartphone. And so now the fact that we have so many things is almost like a sort of a artifact of that, of that prior time. That seems like a good place to, to come to a close. So let me ask you the, the, the question we always end with, which is in the digital philosophy space, because you said you've been reading widely here and I'm interested in this as well. What are a couple of books you'd recommend to people? What, what, who are the thinkers people might not have heard of, but who you wish had more influence in building this new philosophy of technology? Well, I, I would definitely recommend this Jacques Ullul book, E-L-L-U-L, The Technological Society. Um, it's, it's great. It's this it's, it's huge, uh, huge scope where he goes back to the very sort of er earliest tribal societies up until today and understanding the way that we, you know, the way we functioned and how that's different today and has a lot of huge ideas. Uh, it's been very influential as I've been reading it. Um, I also think if you're interested in the philosophy of technology, um, you should go back and read the, the classic work, uh, Medieval Technology and Social Change by Lynn White Jr. And it's, it's this great sort of effort of old-fashioned focused scholarship 
where he basically systematically makes the argument that the invention of the horse stirrup uh, led to feudalism. <laughs> Medieval feudalism is, is, is essentially we had that, that structure of government because of the invention of the horse stirrup. And he, he walks it through really carefully. He's like, okay, I hear I am at the British Museum. Let's look at these pictures. Let's try to understand where the horse stirrup first emerged and what societies. And he walks through this whole sort of well-researched, carefully footnoted argument about how essentially like the horse stirrup made it possible to have sort of armored, mounted cavalry, that these were sort of like the shock troops of the time. Um, but in order to actually support economically uh, standing armored, uh, heavily armored uh, cavalry. You had to change the way the economic system worked uh, to try to have much more sort of land that was being dedicated to sort of an aristocracy that, that, that was a gentry. And, and he walks through the whole thing. Um, but it's it's a great example, I think, of not only just classic uh, philosophy of technology, but it it's a, it's a real reminder, really fun reminder of the ways in which, you know, these technologies we innovate have these really potentially strong impacts that are not pre-planned and they're not deployed by human uh, human intention, right? That you can invent something casually and then look up 20 years later and you're living in feudal Europe. And so I've enjoyed both of those recently. I'd recommend them both. They're both very, very readable, very approachable as well. That is an idea I did not expect to hear today, that the horse stirrup led to the the, uh, evolution of of medieval government. Um, The book is Digital Minimalism. Cal Newport, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you to Cal for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth at at UC Berkeley, to my engineer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, back in D.C., to Jillian Weinberger, my producer. Ezra Klein, she'll be back in a couple of days. 